Attention, ladies and gentlemen of the court. It's time for another case of unbelievably true crimes. Keep in mind that the case details you're about to hear may be completely factual, but it could also be completely fabricated. As your presiding judge, may I remind you that it's your duty to decide for yourself what's real versus what's not up until the very end. Now, let's begin. Welcome back to Unbelievably True Crimes, Episode 2. If you haven't listened to our pilot episode, go listen to it now. I'm Ty, a police officer, and my wife, Adri, Hello. is a 911 dispatcher and my co-host. Unbelievably True Crimes is a crime podcast in which, in which we discuss crime cases of the past. Now I know what you're thinking. I just can't believe there's another true crime podcast. Well, you're wrong. This podcast is not always true crime. Sometimes there are cases that are not true at all. Sometimes the cases are completely fabricated by yours truly. Like you, Adri will not have any idea whether or not the crime we discuss is true or false. She is hearing these cases in real time. She's hearing it all for the first time every single episode. And at the end of each episode, you and Adri will have to consider all the information you learned throughout the episode to decide whether or not the crime was true or false. So. All my fellow true crime lovers out there, it's simply our job to just sit back and enjoy hearing these crime stories until the very end of each episode. That's where we will have to determine whether Ty's story was indeed a true crime or unbelievable. Unbelievably True Crimes aims to bring you interesting and jaw-dropping stories every Monday. And it's my promise to you that regardless of whether or not the crime is true, it will have you wanting more and more. So hang tight till the end of this episode to discover whether or not this crime is true. And don't look it up as we go along because it spoils it all. Don't cheat. You'll have a much more enjoyable experience if you just sit back wherever you are, take every piece of information as it's presented to you, and have fun. Now, without further ado, let us begin. We begin this case focusing on Adele and Stephen Craven. Adele Vacuna, which is her maiden name, grew up in a poor Hispanic area in Long Beach, California. When she met Stephen Craven, who was part of an upper middle class family, he was training to become a pilot for the US Coast Guard, while Adele was in mortician school. They fell in love relatively quickly, and about six months later in 1989, Adele Vacuna and Stephen secretly got married. Ooh, scandalous, I like it. After completion of the Coast Guard, Stephen is looking to find a job as an airline pilot, and in 1992, he gets hired as just that for Delta Airlines. Now, originally, Adele wanted to become a mortician, which was why she had gone to mortician school, but after Stephen got the job with Delta Airlines, she became a housewife, and their first child, Daniel, was born in 1993. I like dead bodies, but second choice, I guess I'll raise kids. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The couple moved from Long Beach, California to Edgewood, Kentucky shortly after Daniel was born. In 1995, two years later, their second son, Joseph, was born. So they now have two children, Daniel and Joseph. Those are actually religious names. Right, and we'll get into that. So the Craven family was described by people in town as being very family-oriented and active within the community, as well as their church of Edgewood, Kentucky. They exhibited a storybook lifestyle, and they were very religious as well, attending church consistently every Sunday. 
Stephen was described as a highly respectable man and at times considered a role model for the town and the church. Now, with any storybook family, there's bound to be some downsides and negatives, right? She likes dead people. <laughs> well, that... <laughs> Stephen was also reportedly very controlling of Adele, and he didn't let her do certain things with friends. He'd complain about her spending too much money and also gaining weight. Oh. She also wanted to get a cell phone, but he would not let her. She also stated that he wanted to have sex too often. Adele decided that Stephen was too critical of her, so she proposed the idea of attending marriage counseling. Stephen then agreed to go to marriage counseling with Adele. And after a few months, Stephen seemed to be completely engaged in counseling. And, and I guess he had this notebook with goals for their marriage and career by his bedside. And various members of the community actually stated that it appeared that Stephen was really trying to improve their marriage. That's good. In Stephen's notebook, a few goals that were written down were, go ahead and read these. Lift and compliment Adele. Her love and partnership make her the most important person in my life. Encourage her growth and independence. Provide Adele the security of unconditional love. Always be courteous and seek her wise counsel. Engage Adele in every level of planning. It should be noted that prior to the marriage counseling, Adele went to her mother and told her that she was going to divorce Stephen, and Adele's mother actually gave her $3,000 to do so, to secure a lawyer and things like that. So how did who gave her the idea of counseling instead? Adele eventually decided that divorce was not the answer, and that's when she brought up the idea of marriage counseling. Very good. Around this time, the Cravens hired a contractor to do some repairs on their home. Adele then met the son of their contractor, who's called Rusty McIntyre. Apparently, McIntyre was also having some marriage problems, and because of this, the two found comfort in empathizing with one another's stories. So Stephen and Adele continue counseling, and everything seems to be improving until the spring of 2000. On July 12th of 2000, at 8.30 p.m., Adele comes home from shopping with her boys, Joseph and Daniel. When she arrives at home, she sees the front door of her home wide open. So naturally, she thinks her home is being burglarized and was broken into. So she takes the kid and goes to the neighbor's house to contact 911. Police arrive and she tells the police that she'd come home from shopping and the police asked her if she had a husband and could it be him? She said that she did have a husband, but it couldn't be her husband because he was on a flight to New York. The police began searching the house and they make their way to the basement and at the base of the stairs, they see something. Oh God, what was it? Upon closer inspection, they saw a man. That a appeared, man? <laughs> they saw a man that appeared to be dead. They're then able to determine that the body is that of Stephen Craven. So there's also blood everywhere. His right arm was also broken, along with his wrist. He had been hit so hard in the skull that his brain was coming through the break in the skull. Oh my gosh. So the community really comes together to support Adele like any community probably would because she's she's in complete disparity. She's just in a complete state of disarray. The two sons start staying with relatives because apparently Adele is so upset that she can't effectively care for the boys. And a neighbor is also quoted as saying, I'll have you read this. It's a shock and none of us could believe it. I would never have expected anything like this to happen to a family like the Cravens. 
So uh, the community is in complete shock. I think just like it was a good guy, just like Adele is. Mm-hmm. So the police begin questioning Adele about Stephen's schedule and the events leading up to that night when they discovered Stephen's body on July 12th. And it's noted by the police that throughout the entire questioning, they noticed that Adele hasn't shed a single tear. The lead investigator for the case working for the Edgewood Police Department, Wayne Wallace, starts doing some background investigation into the crime. And he learns that, that approximately two weeks prior to July 12, 2000, the day that Stephen's body was discovered, an Edgewood patrol officer had caught Adele Craven and a guy identified as Rusty McIntyre having sex in a church parking lot in McIntyre's truck. In the church parking lot? In the church parking oh, lot. Oh my goodness. And wasn't Rusty the, the contractor? So Rusty was the contractor's son that they had hired to do the repairs on the house. Okay. So after learning this, the lead detective Wayne Wallace brings in Adele and asks her if she was seeing anyone or if Stephen was seeing anyone else. And she stated that she was not and Stephen was not seeing anyone else to her knowledge. And Adele made absolutely no indication of seeing Rusty McIntyre in her spare time. The police ended up searching Adele's vehicle, and during the search, they found Adele's passport, a file folder that contained birth certificates for her and her two children, underwear, marriage counseling notes, a makeup bag with all of Adele's makeup inside, a phone charger, and clothes for her children. So after hearing that, what are you thinking? I mean, she probably killed him and was ready to flee get out of here okay police then begin the interview process of adele's friends and neighbors and during these interviews police heard from eight different people that adele had told them on separate occasions that she wished stephen would die one of the eight people stated that adele also asked them if they knew how to hire a hitman she also told her children's babysitter and i want you to read this quote if anything happens to stephen don't ask me about it. I don't want to have to lie to you. Oh my right. gosh. So that's obviously extremely suspicious. A little bit. A little bit. So eight days after Stephen's murder, Adele is arrested on suspicion of Stephen's murder. During her time in custody, she remains true to her original narrative, which is that she's innocent and she knows nothing. When police went to Rusty McIntyre, He refused to speak to Detective Wayne Wallace, and shortly after this, he fled the country and went on a Disney cruise. (laughs) The cruise was supposedly booked prior to his departure, and the police found out that this cruise was paid for with money provided to Adele by her mother to divorce Stephen. So upon returning from the cruise, the police then confront Rusty McIntyre and place him in an interview room where he confesses to receiving the money from Adele to pay for the cruise. He also confesses to being involved in Stephen's death, along with Adele and Ronald Scott Pryor. So now enters Ronald Pryor. Ronald Scott Pryor works as a baggage handler at Delta Airlines. And isn't that the airline Stephen worked for? Correct. So it was learned by police that Ronald Pryor actually befriended Stephen prior to his death. In addition to learning this, the police find Pryor and arrest him for his involvement in Stephen's murder. At the conclusion of the interviews with Ronald Pryor and Rusty McIntyre, it leads detectives to finding some physical evidence at a landfill. Six weeks after the murder, police go search for this evidence at the landfill. So after 16 days and searching through 3,000 tons of garbage, they find a pair of bloody boots 
and a bloody shirt that Pryor wore during the murder of Stephen Craven. DNA testing also confirmed the blood on these items as belonging to Stephen Craven. In Rusty McIntyre's interview, he tells police that he discarded the three bullets in a wooded area which led Detective Wallace to finding these three bullets. The FBI laboratory conducted comparative bullet lead analysis on the bullets which matched them to the rounds found in Stephen's head. The murder weapons, the crowbar and the gun, were never located. At this point, the police charge Adele with murder and the police begin the process of trying to get Ronald Pryor and Rusty McIntyre to flip on Adele. What do you mean by flip? Meaning that the police start speaking with the prosecuting attorneys and the defense attorneys to work out some kind of agreement or deal for Pryor and McIntyre's confession regarding Adele being the one who arranged and orchestrated the whole murder of Stephen. During this time, Adele maintained her innocence and actually began sending Stephen's family letters claiming that she had nothing to do with this. She also sends these letters to her boys as well, stating that she didn't kill their father. July 28th, Rusty was officially arrested and police say, and I want you to read this. As best as we can tell, the motive was an issue of love and money. We believe that Rusty and Adele wanted to be together and their belief was that the only way this could happen was if Stephen was killed. Wow. So the Commonwealth then decides to seek the death penalty on all three, Adele, Rusty, and Ronald Pryor. And that's to put pressure on them to make a deal for their cooperation and for them to, to roll on, on Adele. The judge also forces three separate trials on the three to prevent the three from conspiring together. Rusty McIntyre then agrees to a deal. September 25th, 2001, the judge delays the trial because it's only two weeks after 9-11. So during the trial, lots of things are learned. Among some of those things being, around the time the marriage counseling was going on, Adele was telling her friends that whenever Stephen wanted to have sex, it'd literally make her skin crawl to the point where she wished his plane would crash at work. So she gets the $3,000 from her mother to divorce him, but she decides that there would be more reward to just kill him and get the $500,000 life insurance money from his death. And go to Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Adele begins holding meetings where Rusty, Ronald, and her would discuss the planning for Stephen's murder. Some of the locations where they would kill Stephen discussed at these meetings was a bike trail, Stephen's boat, or the house where he and Adele lived. Rusty and Adele's affair began during the time Rusty and his father were doing the repairs at the Craven household. In June 2000, Adele's sister came and visited from California, and she stated that during this time that she stayed, she cut her trip short because Stephen and Adele were fighting so much. Also during the trial, Adele's sister stated that Stephen was very controlling. She also stated to her sister, she also stated that her sister wasn't interested in material goods and because of that she didn't think her sister would kill her own husband for five hundred thousand dollars she went on to state that when she visited adele they were talking about a hitman but she thought she thought adele was joking about having her husband killed and at one point adele's sister also stated that she suggested that a hitman should come back to california to take out her ex-husband and then just a common joke yeah. all his wives she stated that if she had known Adele was serious, she wouldn't have said that. Adele stated that she couldn't kill Stephen, so that's when she recruited Rusty McIntyre and Ronald Pryor. Pryor then agreed to kill Stephen, 
for $15,000. The plan also consisted of making the Craven home look burglarized after murdering Stephen with the crowbar to make it look legitimate. On July 11th, 2000, Rusty went out to get the murder weapon, a crowbar. Rusty had also purchased Adele a cell phone sometime before Stephen's death so that they could communicate with one another during their affair. When Stephen asked her about the cell phone after noticing it, she told him that she needed the phone to talk with the contractors about the repairs on the home. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Phone records showed that in the month prior to the murder, Rusty and Adele had talked to one another on the phone 502 times for a total of 1,875 minutes. Wow. On the day of the murder, they talked on the phone 22 separate times. On July 12th, Rusty and Ronald met at a cemetery at 9 a.m. as they awaited for Adele's call. They originally decided to meet Adele that morning to look at the layout of the house, where later that night they'd meet to murder Stephen. At the Craven home, Stephen had called a friend in New York, and since he could fly with Delta at no cost, the two were going to meet in New York City to see a Broadway show. Stephen got Adele's approval and called his friend back to make arrangements to see the show that night. Adele immediately called McIntyre and told them that they had to do it now. With their oldest son away at a day camp, Adele let her son go with a neighbor to the grocery store, which provided the opportunity to get Stephen alone. Pryor hid in the back of McIntyre's truck and they drove to the Craven home. Now, it wasn't unusual for McIntyre to show up uninvited as he was still working on a few odd jobs here and there throughout the house. So when he arrived, McIntyre told Stephen that he was there to fix a faulty shower head in the basement. Pryor had hidden in the basement at a prearranged spot where Adele had set up a mirror so that Pryor could see when Stephen was in position to be attacked. Adele lured Stephen toward the garage by telling him that their pet ferret was loose. And that was the signal for Pryor to attack. (laughs) As Stephen approached Adele, she shut the half glass door in his face while Pryor attacked. He struck Stephen a dozen times with the crowbar, shattering his skull so severely that his brain oozed out of the fractures. Adele stood at the window in the door watching the attack. Adele then stated Stephen was still breathing and she stated that she saw Stephen's arm twitch. She produced the Craven family handgun, a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson, and handed it to Pryor. She told him to go in and shoot Stephen. Pryor complied, shooting Stephen one time in the head. As Pryor began to change out of his clothes that he'd been wearing during the murder, Adele again said that Stephen was still breathing. She reloaded the gun, handed it to Pryor, and instructed him to shoot Stephen again. Pryor shot Stephen two more times in the head, leaving bloody boot prints near the body. With the deed done, the three went their separate ways. Adele told Rusty that the longer it was before a body was found, the harder it was to establish a time of death, a piece of information that she'd learned while becoming a mortician. A neighbor watched as McIntyre and Adele drove away from the Craven home. Adele immediately went to the bank and got a $4,000 cash advance from Stephen's credit card. She then met McIntyre at a Verizon store where she paid $1,308.36 on his delinquent cell phone bill with Verizon. Adele gave McIntyre $1,000 to pay Pryor, and then the two had lunch. McIntyre then met Pryor and gave him the $1,000 cash for the murder. 10 hours after the murder, Adele came home and called 911 from a neighbor's phone because 
Quote, the front door is standing open and there is a light on in the office and my husband is supposed to be in New York. Wasn't she, wasn't she grocery shopping with the kids? Yep. When police arrived, they found Stephen's body. So right before the trial, a deal was made with Rusty McIntyre to testify against his co-defendants in exchange for a sentence of life without parole for 25 years. Pryor was found guilty, and in April 2002, in Kenton County Circuit Court, a jury sentences him to death by the electric chair. The judge waits to sentence this to see if maybe the prosecutor can get him to flip on Adele and have him testify against her in Adele's trial. Adele Craven hires an aggressive attorney who goes by Deanna Dennison, who successfully sought a change of venue to Lexington, Kentucky. Okay, why did she want the venue changed? I think she probably wanted it out of the small town of Edgewood since so many people were invested in the case, since lots Mm -hmm. of them probably knew the Cravens personally. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, in addition to being extremely aggressive, Deanna Dennison also had recently gotten the murderer of a seven-year-old child out of prison after several trials. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so she's pretty good probably at her job. So Rusty decides to testify against Adele, and during the trial he calls Adele his soulmate. But he testifies regardless for a chance to not get death row. So the state of Kentucky wants Adele so badly that the Attorney General's office is prosecuting this case. They go for the death penalty on Adele, which is crazy because only three women have ever been sentenced to death row in Kentucky. The trial of Adele Craven is attended by a lot of people. Previous attorneys from Ronald Pryor's trial and also Rusty McIntyre's trial attend. Police officers, various other attorneys from the state, and also the family of Adele and Stephen. During the trial, Pryor and McIntyre both testify against Adele, and both of their facts line up. Adele's sister testifies, as did her neighbors and various other people that testified to Adele's strange comments and behavior leading up to Stephen's death. They also have the forensic specialist testify who says, go ahead and read this. Mr. Craven, for part of this ordeal, suffered extreme pain. He was probably very aware he was being attacked. He would have ultimately died from the blows to the head had he not been shot. Prosecutors do a very good job of detailing the whole event and the events leading up to it. The defense attorneys state that Adele had ended the affair with Rusty prior to the murder and that they remained friends after that. They also stated that Stephen and Adele were dedicated to getting their marriage back on track. They then took an angle of attacking Rusty, stating that because being in love with Adele and her wanting to fix the marriage with her husband, this set him off due to having emotional problems. The lawyer stated that Rusty was losing Adele and he knew it. He then states that because of doing repairs at the Craven household, Rusty had access to the house, which would allow for Rusty to access the gun safe where the 38 caliber gun was, which allowed for the murder of Stephen. They also state that Rusty had gone off of his antidepressants and began drinking excessively, and due to this, that clouded his judgment and could have affected his ability to recall murdering Stephen. Odell then testified for 14 hours across two days. She remained very calm throughout her testimony, and at times the jury requested that she speak up because of how quietly she was speaking. At one point, she stated, and I want you to read this. I did love Steve. I still love him, and he'll always be a part of me. In the cross-examination of Adele with Attorney General Christina Brown, Christina Brown told Adele, quote, In fact, it was you, Ronald Pryor, and Rusty McIntyre together that committed this murder. To which Adele responded with, quote, That is not true, Miss Brown. Rusty McIntyre and Ronald Pryor 
killed my husband. And Attorney General Christina Brown said, quote, You know that, Miss Craven, because you were there, right? Adele then said, quote, I know that, Miss Brown, because they confessed to it. Rusty implicated me to save his own skin. He is betraying me. So the jury is made up of 10 women and two men. The verdict is a hung jury. That means the jury couldn't decide. A mistrial was then declared by the judge in December of 2002. Prosecutors struck a deal with Ron Pryor to escape the death penalty to testify against Adele and Adele Craven's retrial in January of 2004 in exchange for a sentence of life without parole. Adele has no more money after spending so much in the first trial, so she's appointed two new attorneys. In January of 2004, Adele Craven was again tried for murder in Lexington, Kentucky. On February 20th, 2004, after six weeks of trial in the conclusion of the Commonwealth's case, Adele requested to plead guilty to murder to avoid a possible sentence of death and agreed to a sentence of life in prison with a possibility of parole within 20 years. She also waived any future appeal and was sentenced immediately. Mid-March of 2004, Rusty McIntyre was sentenced to life in prison without parole for 25 years. A week later, Ronald Pryor was sentenced to life without parole. So, wait, Adele got the most lenient sentence? Yes. Unreal, right? A little bit, yeah. Like, there's no doubt in my head that was all her plan. In an article on Murderpedia.com, it states, Adele Craven's three-and-a-half-year lie came to an abrupt ending as she stood before a judge and admitted she orchestrated her husband's killing. The confession and guilty plea came after prosecutors had completed presenting five weeks of evidence in Craven's retrial. They had called dozens of witnesses and presented hundreds of pieces of evidence to show Craven helped arrange the July 2000 killing of Stephen Craven, a veteran Delta Airlines pilot, in their home in Edgewood. Witnesses said Craven hired a hitman, arranged for him to ambush her husband in the basement of their home, and stood by and watched as her husband was beaten and shot three times. Quote, There was not one event, piece of evidence, or testimony in the prosecutor's case that convinced Adele to accept a plea agreement, said co-defense attorney Kenneth McCardwell of Louisville. It was a combination of everything. In exchange for pleading guilty to the charge of complicity to murder, she avoided the possibility of being only the fourth woman in Kentucky history to be sentenced to death. Kenton County Circuit Judge Patricia Sume sentenced Craven, 40 years old, to life in prison. She will be eligible for parole in 20 years. Prosecutor Luke Morgan of Frankfurt said the plea agreement was worth it, even if he didn't get the death sentence. He says, quote, the most important thing is she admitted to what she did, said Morgan. She won't be able to file appeals for years to come and harass the victim's family. This guilty plea will help relieve the pain that family has felt. The trial had been moved from Covington to Lexington because of pretrial publicity. Stephen Craven's brother, Bill Craven, rushed from his office furniture business in Atlanta to catch the first flight here so he could be in the court to hear his sister-in-law admit to the killing. He clutched the hands of other Craven family members, some of whom traveled from California, as Craven told the judge, she did it. Quote, I was stunned at today's developments because she has denied it from the beginning, said Bill Craven, but I always knew that she was guilty. It was so obvious to us. Bill Craven, who was raising the Craven's two boys, said he believes his brother would be satisfied. 
Bill Craven said his brother wasn't a death penalty advocate. Quote, To hear her say that she is guilty is the most valuable thing of all, Bill Craven said. He said he soon plans to tell his nephews, now 10 and 12 years old, that their mother has pleaded guilty to their father's killing, but he would avoid the gruesome details. Quote, That's for them to find out when they are older, Bill Craven said. Craven has been in jail since a few weeks after the murder. The plea brings to an end a long legal battle. Craven's first trial ended with a hung jury in December of 2002. Eight of the jurors wanted to acquit Craven. In order to present a stronger case for the retrial, Morgan made a deal with the hitman, Ronald Scott Pryor. Pryor, already found guilty of murder, avoided the possibility of being sentenced to death in exchange for testifying against Adele Craven. Ronald Pryor told jurors how Craven wanted her husband killed, paid him $1,000 and even stuck a gun in his hand and said, quote, finish the job. Craven's repeated lover, Russell Rusty McIntyre, also testified against the woman as part of a plea deal. McIntyre told jurors that Craven had promised him an easy life if he helped her in the killing. He said Craven planned to collect on her husband's life insurance and marry him. Quote, we finally have closure today, said Morgan. Adele Craven hurt so many people. And that's the end. Adele be crazy. <laughs> Very much so. So that's the end of that. Any thoughts before we get to whether or not you think it's real or not? Any questions? No. Um, I'm going to, I'm leaning towards unbelievable this time. Not true. Yeah. Why do you say that? I don't know. Cause I can't read you. So I'm just, I'm <laughs> just guessing this time. It was true. Seriously? <laughs> Completely real. Oh my gosh. A true crime. I am not very good at this. You're zero for zero so far. <laughs> so yeah, that is a real crime. That is uh, the case of that is the case of Adele Craven, who murdered, well, orchestrated the murder of her husband, Stephen Craven. The actual murder was committed by her two henchmen, Ronald Pryor and Rusty McIntyre. I just thought it was interesting that out of the three of them, she got the most lenient sentence. She got, they, they got screwed. Yeah, absolutely. Granted, granted, they were absolutely involved in the physical killing, but I mean, she orchestrated the whole thing. At one point she even gave, she gave the other guy the gun and said, finish him. Yes. At two different occasions, she said, oh, he's still alive. And then he was, you know, they finished him off. Unreal. Wow. It's just crazy to me that she, uh. <laughs> she kind of got off pretty good. So that will conclude the second episode of Unbelievably True Crimes. You can follow us at Unbelievably True Crimes on Instagram. Also, facebook.com slash Unbelievably True Crimes. Don't have a Twitter. Not sure that we ever will because I'm not a huge fan. Uh, if you have case suggestions for the future, email Unbelievably True Crimes at gmail.com. Or if you have ideas for crimes that I should make up, elements of elements of crimes that I should make up, or you want to help me make up a crime to be presented on the air, to be presented on the show, again, email unbelievablytruecrimes at gmail.com. This was fun. Thanks for joining us, guys. Tune in for episode three. Again, we release these every Monday. So keep tuning in. 
We hope you enjoyed episode two and episode one. If you haven't listened to episode one, go back and listen to that. That's a good one as well. I'm not going to say whether it was true or not. That's for you to find out. Like I said, if you have any constructive criticism or or criticism in general, email in or send us an Instagram message or a Facebook message. Also, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Just search Unbelievably True Crimes. Click on that purple icon on your iPhone or your computer. Give us five stars and leave a review. Hopefully, we're worth five stars, but that's also for you to decide. This has been another episode of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. Stay tuned. And in the meantime, trust nobody. Thank you for listening to another case of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. We appreciate your attentiveness and good judgment throughout the hearing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes. Until next time, court is adjourned. Thank you and good night.